Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of the Study with Steve Martin podcast. I'm your host, Shonda Martin. For those that are joining us for the first time today, the Study with Steve Martin podcast is the audio companion to my study, Bible study textbook, workbook, and free online Bible study course. Visit us online at studywithcmartin.com. There you can register for the free online course and access and download all of the materials chapter by chapter for free. Before we get started today, we're going to pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, God, I thank you for your word and the power to believe your word, for it is the power of God unto salvation, unto all who believe your word. I thank you, Father, for surrounding us with your favor as a shield, for drawing nigh as we continue to draw into your word. I thank you, Father, for filling us all with the spirit of wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of you, that the eyes of our understanding continually being enlightened, that we would know what is the hope of your calling, the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints of light, and that we would all know, see, demonstrate, and experience the exceeding abundance of your power, which is continually at work in us and toward us who believe your word. Continue to have your way in this place and be glorified. Continue to reveal yourself as we study your word. We forbid any ungodly thing to hinder us from receiving truth today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if you're joining us for the first time today, I do ask that you come off of this episode review all of the previous episodes, and then return to this one once you're caught up. We are in the final chapter of the final part of the study course. So we've covered 17 chapters up to this point. So you've got a lot of catching up to do if you're just joining us for the first time. But if you have been hanging in there with me all from the beginning, today we are covering part one of chapter 18. And in this section of the study course, we are going over what it means to do business until he comes. Jesus has given us a command to make disciples and to feed his sheep. In chapter 16, we went over what it meant to be a disciple. And in chapter 17, we went over the different ways that we are to minister as disciples and apostles of Jesus. So now in chapter 18, we're going over the severe warnings that are given to leaders in the body of Christ and the consequences that are in store for those who choose not to obey Jesus' commands. So again, chapter 18 is entitled, Heed His Warning, Do Business Till I Come. Romans chapter 9 verse 9 says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay, you're a believer. You've accepted Jesus as your Savior. But is he really your Lord? Even though the Bible clearly tells us that as disciples that we are to share the gospel with the world and make disciples, many of us don't really believe that Jesus actually expects each believer to do what he said. How do we know that? Because if you really believe that, you would be sharing the gospel with people you know right now. Jesus said, The one who loves me is the one who keeps or obeys my commandments. He said that in John chapter 14, verse 21. And in Luke 6, 46, Jesus said, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? What did Jesus command us to do? In Mark 16, verses 15 to 18, the Bible tells us, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. 
and they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. In Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, the Bible tells us, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus taught about eternal life and the kingdom of heaven more than any other prophet. And of the parables he shared, he taught about his return and what will happen to those who obeyed and those who disobeyed more than any other subject. Think about that for a minute. Why would he spend so much time telling this to his disciples? Because there was obviously something that his disciples, the people who followed him, needed to know. Pay close attention so that you too will discover what it is that you also need to know. Understand the parables and make corrections. Jesus taught many parables about his return. You can divide those parables up into two categories. Parables to give warnings and allow you time to make changes before he returns, and parables that tell you what happens when Jesus returns. So let's look at the ones that talk about before Jesus comes first. These all tell that judgment day is coming and that people need to make preparation and that they still have time to make those changes. And it's important to note that preparation equals works and that also equals white linen wedding garment. And we'll see that in some of these parables. So when it's talking about white linen wedding garment or works, they are talking about whatever preparation or correction you're supposed to be making now and this time. The first parable that we're going to look at is the parable of the two sons. And we see that in Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 to 32. Both sons received instructions. They both initially refused. And even though they both had time to do so, only one repented and obeyed his father. And although they both were sons, only one of them was obedient. And what does that tell us? All of us who have received salvation are counted as children of God. But those who are obedient children of God are the ones that are going to receive reward come judgment day, and the disobedient will not. Next, we see in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 13, the parable of the unjust steward. In this parable, the steward knows that accounting time is coming where he has to give an account for how he has handled his master's business. The unjust steward knew that he had been cheating his master all along. So he was always on the lookout for an opportunity to make deals with people and he is purposeful to make preparations so that he would always have a friend to rely on and a place to go when accounting time came and he received his reward, which in his case would have been being fired. Likewise, believers today should realize that they need to make preparations because accounting time is coming. Whether you have been obedient or disobedient, you're going to have to settle up your accounts in the day of judgment with the Lord Jesus Christ. Like this unjust steward, we should always be on the lookout for every opportunity to share the gospel and make disciples so that we too will have a place to go when accounting time comes. Next, we see the parable of the 10 virgins. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 13, we see where there were 10 virgins that all had ample opportunity to prepare to go with the bridegroom when he comes. At one point, while they were all waiting for the bridegroom, they all fell asleep and slumbered, and then the bridegroom came. The Bible says that those who were prepared went with the bridegroom, whereas those who were not prepared 
were not permitted to go with the bridegroom and were left behind. Next, we see the parable of the wheat and the tares, and that's found in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30, and also verses 36 to 43. And that passage of scripture says, Another parable Jesus put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came in and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, the tares also appeared. The servants of the owner came in and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? How does it have weeds? The landowner said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us to go then and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you'll also uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather the tares and bind them into bundles and burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Again, as we go through the rest of these parables, we're going to see where Jesus keeps mentioning what's going to happen come judgment day and how he's given people time to make correction. In this parable right here, he's saying how there are the tares and the wheat, those who are obeying the word of God and those who are not obeying the word of God. And we see where the ones who are obeying his word will be gathered up into the kingdom of their father. And those who were in his kingdom, they're talking about sons of the kingdom now, not talking about the wayward world people. They're talking about sons of the kingdom. And I say that like that because a lot of times we can be in church and like to say that the world is doing this and the world is doing that. But no, we need to start looking at what we're doing inside of the church. So he's going to start with the church and he's going to clean house. He's going to get rid of the disobedient sons of the kingdom, everything that offends and those who practice lawlessness or disobedience. Said he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So pay attention. In Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 5, Jesus was telling his disciples and the large crowd about those in Galilee who had suffered tragedy. He said that they would all reap similar destruction if they did not repent now. Likewise, it won't just be the sinners who are cast into the lake of fire on the day of judgment. Those in the church will also be met with destruction if they choose not to repent and obey the Lord's commands. Well, let's look at that passage. In Luke 13, verses 1 to 5, we see this, where Jesus was talking and some people came up to him and asked him a couple of questions. It says, There were present at that season some who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. That was sacrilegious to do that. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. 
But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Here in this parable, Jesus was telling those who were present, those who had come to hear him teach and preach, he was telling them, the supposedly righteous people, that they would also face random calamity or destruction if they did not repent and receive him as their savior. So how does that apply to us come judgment day? A lot of times we can look at the world, those outside of the church, and say that they're the big sinners, they're this and they're that, and we're the holy and righteous children of God, and we'll be spared from everything come judgment day. But as we'll see, as we continue to go through the rest of these parables, we'll see that we in the church also need to make correction. Otherwise, we will be facing judgment just like the rest of the world will come judgment day. So listen to these parables and make correction wherever they wherever it applies to you. Amen. The next parable Jesus talked about when he talked about end times was the parable of the fig tree. And that's found in Luke chapter 13, verses six to nine. This one also mentions a landowner that had a fig tree. When the landowner saw that the fig tree still had no fruit after many years, he told the servant to chop it down. But the servant asked the master to give the tree more time. And if it did not bear fruit after a while, then cut it down. And the master agreed. If you were cut down today, you would have no more opportunity to make any corrections. But as with this fig tree, God is giving us time to make corrections where we need to do so, so that we are not chopped down and cast into the fire. Again, these parables that we're talking about right now, these are talking about where God has given us time to make correction. Kind of like the Christmas movies where, like a Christmas carol, where the Scrooge character is shown how terrible he's been and he has an opportunity to change his ways so that his future can be changed. Well, likewise, with these parables, the Lord is telling us, hey, stop, look in the mirror, see where you need to make correction so that you're not chopped down suddenly where you no longer have a chance to make any correction. Because once people are chopped down, once they die, there's no more opportunity to make correction. But God doesn't want you to suffer eternity in hell, separated from him. He wants you to be in eternity, in heaven with him. So let's keep listening to see what he is requiring of the body of Christ. In Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 37, Jesus taught about judgment day and how it's surely coming. He taught continually that just as in the days of Noah, people today live life just as if he is not coming back, that his instructions don't apply to them, and they don't feel any need to make any kind of correction. But whether or not they choose to make any kinds of corrections, judgment day is still coming. And those who have been obedient will have the good that Jesus spoke of, while those who did not do what Jesus commanded will find themselves spending eternity in hell. Next, we see the parable of the wicked vine dressers. The vine dressers are people who take care of the vineyard. And we see that in Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 41. Here, the vine dressers, they were supposed to present the harvest to the owner of the vineyard. The vineyard owner sent several servants and his son to collect the harvest from the vine dressers. However, they refused to render what they were supposed to. They beat the servants that the master sent. They even killed the master's son who came to receive the harvest. In this particular parable, we see where the servants or the vine dressers had opportunity after opportunity to produce fruit and present what they were supposed to. 
and they not only refused to do so, but they killed those that the master sent to inquire of their progress and remind them that they did have a work to do. And the equivalent of this is the prophets that God continually sent throughout history to warn his people and remind his people of the corrections that they were supposed to be making. And what did people do over the centuries with the prophets God sent? What did they do with Jesus? While some did receive what the prophets were saying, a good number of the people refused to receive what the prophets were saying, killed the prophets, and they even had Jesus crucified because they refused to receive him. And in this parable, those who refused to do as the vineyard owner commanded, those who had treated his servants and his son disrespectfully and and killed them, those people were destroyed and what should have been theirs was given to others. And so what we take from that is we don't want our portion of inheritance that is reserved for the children of God to be given to somebody else because we were disobedient. We want to receive correction and instruction. We don't want to beat the people that are giving us correction and instruction. Amen. Next, we see the minas and the talents parables. These are two different parables found in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27 and Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. Both of these parables talk about what people should be doing while the master is gone and what will happen to the obedient and disobedient ones when the master returns. And we will go over these in detail a little bit later. The next parable is the parable of the wedding supper. And that's found in Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. In this parable, we see where all were invited to the master's wedding feast for his son, but some rejected the invitation, some beat and killed the servants that presented the invitations, and some accepted the invitations, one of whom, once inside the wedding feast, was cast out because it was discovered that he was not wearing the correct wedding garments. And again, as I mentioned before, the things that we have to pay attention to with these parables are the works, the garments, and the preparation that Jesus spoke of in each one of these parables. So we're going to talk more about what that white wedding garment represents and what work we are expected to be doing as disciples of Jesus. Now let's look at the parables that talk about when Jesus comes. When Jesus comes, there will not be any more time to make changes. And these all end with the disobedient standing outside, thrust out, or cast out into outer darkness. First, we see in Matthew chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, Jesus said that while many will come from the east and the west to sit down at the table, the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. Jesus said this as he was speaking a word to heal the centurion servant. He was talking about how the centurion had faith and those that were supposed to be the people of God did not have faith to receive what God had offered through Jesus. And as a result, the centurion, who was not an Israelite, he was receiving what God freely provided, yet his own people did not receive Jesus. So in the day of judgment, Jesus was saying that many will come from the east and from the west to sit at the table and thinking that they're going to have a place in the kingdom of heaven with God the Father and Jesus our Lord. And those who thought they had a seat are going to be cast out into outer darkness. Very similar to what we see with the parable of the wedding feast. Next is the parable of the guests, and that's recorded in Luke chapter 14, verses 7 to 14. In this parable, Jesus said, don't just assume that you'll be given a place of honor just because you were invited, that your place may be taken from you and given to someone else. So always assume that there's a work that you need to be doing, not that you've arrived, but that there's a work that you continually need to be doing. A lot of times we can puff ourselves up and think that we've arrived and that we are 
I know I got my white robe and my, my crown is intact and I'm going to be chilling with Jesus come judgment day. Well, double check the book and make sure you're doing as Jesus commanded. And even then, there's still more work for you to be doing. We don't want to puff ourselves up to the point where we, I guess in a similar capacity as in the fable, the tortoise and the hare. The hare just thought he was just so fast and so speedy that he just got very comfortable and complacent with the thought of him being faster than the tortoise. And he let that thought cost him the race. Well, likewise, we can't get puffed up within ourselves thinking that we're just so far out ahead of everything and everybody else that there's not anything else that we need to be doing. Like that hare, we need to be running a race. So make sure that you are doing what the Lord Jesus commanded ready to make correction wherever necessary. Next, there is the parable of the dinner. We see that in Luke chapter 14, verses 15 to 24. Those who were too busy to follow his instructions will not eat at his table. In this parable, the master sent for people to come to this dinner. Those who were too busy caught up in their own agendas doing what they want to do, they will not eat from his table come judgment day. They will be cast out. They will be cast aside. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 to 52, we see the parable of the dragnet. And that tells what happens after all of the fish are gathered together. The good will be kept and the bad will be cast out, will be thrown aside. And again, who are the good? Those who obeyed the Lord. Who are the bad? Those who did not obey the Lord. Then we see the parable of the sheep and the goats. And that's in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. When Jesus comes... He will separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep represent the obedient sons and the goats represent the disobedient ones. The sheep will inherit the kingdom of God and the goats will be cast into the lake of fire. Noticing a trend with all of these parables. Now, why did Jesus tell these two kinds of parables? What's the purpose of these parables? To condemn the church and make people weary with the word of God? No. Jesus told these parables to let all people know, saved and unsaved alike, that they still have an opportunity to repent and follow his commands. He also tells the parables to let you know that once he returns, there will be no more time to make corrections. And if you have not repented or done what you were supposed to do by that time, it will be too late for you to do so. And very much like how God the Father sent the prophet Jeremiah to warn the Israelites time and again, before judgment came and they were carried off to captivity, he kept sending reminders to them because he knew judgment was coming and he was giving them an opportunity to repent and make correction. And that's what the Bible says also. In Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. And so in the same way that God sent Jeremiah to warn the Israelites and The religious leaders looked around and saw that their land was prosperous and everything was going good for them and they saw no need to make correction. We have to examine ourselves, recognizing that even if things are working out well for us financially, even if our children are doing great and our marriage is great and everything in our lives are great, we don't judge things by what we see. The Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. You can be deceived by the appearance of things in the same way that a person can be deceived by the appearance of symptoms of sickness and disease or distress and think that they have to have sickness and disease just because of what they can see or feel you can make yourself think that 
everything is fine just because things look fine. Don't let yourself be deceived by the temporary fineness of the situation. Recognize what Jesus is saying in these in these parables and make the corrections. It's it's like, you know, in talking to your children, it's not necessary for you to have to get a spanking. You can just listen to what I'm saying and you don't have to get a spanking. You can listen to what I'm saying and you don't have to have any consequences. But if you choose to disregard my instruction, and it's like what I've told my children, we only have problems when you don't follow my instructions. We don't want to have problems in the day of judgment. We want to do as the Lord has commanded and reap the good that he has promised us. Amen. So pay attention to what he's saying here and let's make the corrections that we need to. All right. So now we're going to look at why Christians need to be like that unjust steward. As we have learned, when we study the Bible, it's important to zoom out and fully read what's being said instead of just taking isolated verses out of context. In the 16th chapter of Luke, Jesus taught several things that all have to do with how our love for present comforts, present things, present position, and present wealth can cause us not to be consistently obedient in the things of God. We'll stop right now and take a look at the entire chapter of Luke chapter 16. Jesus said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that the man was wasting his goods. So he, he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I'm ashamed or too proud to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I'm put out of the stewardship, when I'm fired, that they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bills and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? So he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write down 80. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is also unjust in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard these things, and they derided him, or turned their noses up at him for saying these things. And Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were in effect until John. Since that time, the kingdom of heaven has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. And it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one jot or tittle of the law to fail. Jesus went on to say, 
Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in hell, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then the rich man cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Now, what do we learn from this chapter? In the first part of that chapter, we looked at the parable of the unjust steward. That steward consistently disobeyed God by consistently cheating his master and had a reputation for doing so. In the next section of that chapter, we see where he talked about the Pharisees, how they were lovers of money. Well, the Pharisees consistently disobeyed God by consistently cheating the people of God, by exalting themselves before men and placing a higher value on material wealth than on the things of God. Jesus also said, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband also commits adultery. He was still talking about the Pharisees because God considered himself married to his people. And whenever his people followed after ungodly things and ungodly practices, he always said that they were an adulterous generation, meaning that they were cheating on him with false gods and ungodly practices. So the Pharisees were the ones who divorced God. And where he says, whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery, he's saying whoever they join themselves to also likewise commit adultery with them. Whoever chooses to follow along with the Pharisees' ungodly practices are likewise committing adultery. So he's saying there, for anybody to come into the Pharisees or any other religious figure thinking that this person is doing fine in and of themselves, no, that's like finding out somebody is a fugitive from the law. Oh, you thought they were just a regular shop owner. No, that person's a fugitive. Well, likewise, these Pharisees were religious leaders acting as though that they were fine in all of their religious rights. But Jesus was like, no, that's an adulterous person. Do not join yourself to them. Lastly, in that passage, we see where Jesus was talking about the rich man and Lazarus. And those were actual people because Jesus said a certain man. So these were real people. The rich man consistently disobeyed God by consistently looking past the need of his fellow man yet somehow expected there to be mercy for himself when accounting time came. 
And one interesting thing about the rich man and Lazarus that I realized as I was reading, and we'll see this a little bit later in another one of the parables, but we'll see how on judgment day, those who are deserving of great punishment, they're actually going to end up receiving less punishment. And those who are sons of the kingdom are going to end up with greater punishment. In this story here, Lazarus had been a beggar who had leprosy. Well, we've gone over leprosy. Leprosy was a spiritually defiling condition that also caused their bodies to be defiled with odorous sores. So this man in his lifetime had committed some egregious spiritual wrong, some egregious spiritual trespass, where you would think to yourself, oh, well, he's just, he must be going to hell if he's stricken with leprosy because in life he was spiritually separated from the people of God, which would obviously seem that he's separated from God and eternity. But here we see when the rich man and Lazarus died, the person who ended up going to hell was the rich man. Not because he had money. God's not opposed to you having money. But it was a condition of your heart. The rich man, he had no love for his brother. The scripture says, how can you say that you love God who you cannot see, but you don't love your brothers that you do see? So that was a good example of where those who you thought were going to end up in hell don't end up in hell. And those who you thought were supposed to go to heaven are not going to end up in heaven. You don't just go to heaven just because you're saved or just because you've been going to church for 20 years. What is your heart condition? And have you been obeying what the Lord commanded you to do? Now, in this chapter, all three groups of people consistently disobeyed God and all three groups of people received or would receive the everlasting habitations they sowed for. Now, look back at that, the parable of the unjust steward. And that's in verses eight to 13 of this chapter. It says, so the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly for the sons of this world. Those who did not know God are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light who were God's people. Jesus said in that passage, this is again, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, which is riches and wealth that are opposed to God. So that when you fail, they, the people that you trade with, your gains from these riches may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least the things of this world is faithful also in much in the kingdom of heaven. And he who is unjust in what is least, which is the things of this world, is also unjust in the things of the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon or the things of this world, who will commit to your trust the true riches, the things in the kingdom of heaven? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? If you have not been consistent and faithful in overseeing what the Lord commanded you to do here on the earth, the Lord is not going to put you in charge of something of your own in his heavenly kingdom. No servant can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot truly serve and obey God while doing things that oppose God to cause you to have wealth. What was Jesus saying here? Was he commending the unjust steward for having shady business practices and telling us to follow their example? If not, just what are we supposed to learn from this parable? Many have taken verse 8 out of context, wrongly assuming that word shrewd means that the steward was a wise businessman. Well, when we look up the original wording of that verse, we see that the original word used in that verse is not shrewd, but prudent. And the Lord commended the unrighteous steward 
that he did prudently because the sons of this age are more prudent than the sons of light in respect to their generation. So what does prudent mean? Prudent means acting with or showing care and thought for the future or giving thoughtful consideration for the future. So why was this steward consistent in being unjust? The unjust steward consistently chose to steal so that he would always be taken care of, purposing to cheat in the present time to make sure that he would always have some place to go in the future. Pause and think about that for a minute. He always purposed to do something today to benefit him in the future. So how are Christians to be like this dishonest man? This man was consistently prudent, always giving careful consideration to how his present actions would cause him to always have some place to go in the future. Like the Pharisees and the rich man, however, many Christians today waffle with obeying the word of God, yet they still expect to have heaven as their eternal habitation. They choose to disobey the word of God in their daily lives, and by so doing, they are not giving careful consideration to how their present actions will cause them to have some place to go in the future, whether that future place is eternity with the Lord in heaven or eternity in hell. While the Pharisee and the rich man only considered how their present actions would affect their present comforts, only the unjust steward consistently considered how his present actions would affect his future. Psalm 15 verses 1 to 5 tell us, Lord, who shall dwell in your tabernacle and who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks and lives uprightly and blamelessly, who works righteousness and justice and speaks and thinks truth in his heart. He who does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his friend, nor takes up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he who honors those who fears the Lord, who revere and worship him, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, he who does not put out his money for interest to one of his own people, and who does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. Psalm 15 verses 1 to 5 tells us here that a righteous man will swear to his own hurt, that he will consistently maintain his position and will not change course, even if it means he will lose friends, lose money, or lose prominence as a result. That's what it means to swear to your own hurt. I'm going to stick to my guns, even if I end up on the short end of the stick. I'm going to stick to what the word of God says, even if it doesn't look like I'm prospering. I'm going to stick to what the word of God says, because I believe his word in spite of what you can see. Amen. But who are the righteous? Those who should know, believe, and obey the word of God. How was this steward in the parable better than God's people? The steward was unjust 100% of the time. He didn't turn over a new leaf when faced with losing his job. He didn't come clean and ask for a second chance. He was 100% unjust through and through. Even when faced with the consequences of being caught as a thief and a swindler, he continued being a thief and a swindler. He went to his master's clients and started making hustle deals so that he would be in their good graces after he got fired from that job. Sadly, many Christians today, just as the Jews Jesus was talking to, are not consistent in believing and obeying the word of God. We're not as shrewd as the sons of the world. Many Christians today will boldly declare that they believe the word of God while they're at church or when they're around people they want to make a good Christian impression with. However, when tough situations or even temptations to do wrong come along, their allegiance to believing and obeying the word of God is up for grabs. 
While you know it's wrong to steal, do you focus on meeting a temporary need by stealing supplies from the supply closet at work while no one is looking? While you know that adultery is wrong, do you settle for the temporary thrill of watching lustful movies with your regular friends when your church friends are not around? Although Jesus commanded his disciples to preach the gospel, do you focus on your present desire to disobey his command without giving any thought to what that disobedience will cost you in the future? Only those who consistently believe and obey the word of God in this present age will have the eternal habitation God promised in his word. But are we really being as disobedient as the Pharisees and the rich man if we're not preaching the gospel? Is obeying that one instruction really that important? What business does the Lord really expect for us to do? Jesus taught one example of this in a parable one day, in the parable of the Minas. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called 10 of his slaves and gave them 10 minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared saying, master, your mina has made me 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are going to be an authority over 10 cities. The second came, saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. And another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I put away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, By your own words I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have at least collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, master, he has 10 minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has works showing that they obeyed their master, more shall be given but from the one who does not have any work to show, even what he does have will be taken away. But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. And that's recorded in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. The master in this parable was furious with his servant because his servant hid what he was given instead of multiplying it and doing business with it as the other servants had done. And think about that for a minute. He was furious with them because they had not done with it what they were supposed to. In the same way that Jesus commanded us to preach the gospel, Jesus has assured us, man, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation unto all who believe. If we believe and preach the gospel, lives will be changed. But if you tell yourself, oh, well, the good Lord didn't call everybody to preach. Well, I'm not going to be effective with this. I'm just going to leave that for the real preachers. You're essentially putting the gospel in a handkerchief and putting it under your coffee table. You are rendering it ineffective and powerless 
for yourself and anybody else you were supposed to minister to. But the good Lord knows that he didn't give you anything that's powerless. He gave you something that's full of power. But you chose to let it be powerless. But see, the thing is, we don't get away that easy because judgment day is still coming. There's still going to be a reckoning. There's still going to be an accounting. And you can't just say, well, I didn't think this really applied to me. Well, his word says that it does. Now, looking back at this parable, who's the master in this parable? Jesus. And like the master in the parable, he's coming back when his servants least expect it. Who were the slaves and the servants? His disciples. What did the minus represent? The gospel that will result in salvation. What was the interest that the servants made with the master's minus? That's the multiplied number of disciples that were made as a result of them sharing the gospel. What did the last servant have that was taken away? His salvation. Who were the ones that were the master's enemy? Those who did not want him to be Lord over them and those who didn't want to obey him. So I'm going to keep talking. So I just want you to be thinking while I'm talking. In Old Testament times, when people would call the master's Lord, that means that you're my master. I do what you say. Lord Jesus, we like to say Lord Jesus. Yes, Jesus is Lord, whether you bow to him or not in this life, which you will in the next. However, we also reverence Jesus as Lord when we recognize and acknowledge that his word has weight with us. If he said you're supposed to do something, then you're supposed to do it. Again, the Bible tells us that the gospel is the power of God that results in salvation unto everyone who believes. And that's in Romans chapter one, verse 16. But if people never hear the gospel, they can never have the increase or the benefit of salvation. And we see that in Romans 10. The master in this parable gave his servants the gospel for the purpose of sharing it with others, not to hide it in a napkin on a shelf or in a hole. As long as the gospel is hidden, it cannot do anything to help any of the people the disobedient servant was supposed to share it with and was even rendered powerless to do anything for the servant that it was given to. The master had the same results that he would have had, had he not given the servant anything at all. No profits. And if the master wasn't going to have any profits, the disobedient servant wasn't going to be able to keep the money he had been given to do business with, which is no salvation. The Bible also tells us, and as it is appointed for man to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly await for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And we see that in Hebrews 9 verses 27 to 28. In Matthew 24, 36, we see, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, we see, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Again, Jesus told us to do business because he is coming back. And when he does, it will be too late for anybody else to receive salvation. When he comes back, all who have not heard the gospel or chosen to receive salvation will be judged and cast into the hell. And it is not God's will for anybody to go to hell. 2 Peter chapter 3 says that just as surely as the flood came in Noah's days, as God told Noah that it would, Jesus is most certainly, most definitely coming back again, just as he said he will. 
And when you get a moment, you should stop and read the entire chapter of Second Peter chapter 3. Until that time comes, we who are saved and know his word must be diligent in fulfilling what the Lord commanded, or else we too will be judged with the world. Confirming the word with the word. As I said before, it is always good to look at things in context, and the Bible tells us to let every word be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. And we see that in Deuteronomy 19.15, Matthew 18.16, and 2 Corinthians 13.1. So what does that mean? Don't just take one random scripture or passage and try to establish a doctrine with it. Rather, confirm what is truly being said, study to find other scriptures and passages in context that can support what you've read. With that said, the parable of the Minas is only recorded in the book of Luke and is not mentioned in the other Gospels. However, in the 25th chapter of Matthew, Jesus tells two other parables with the same theme of this parable. The parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents. Don't just take my word for it. Let's stop and read those parables now. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept, and at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him into the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. And that's recorded in Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13. In Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30, we see this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. This sounds real similar to the parable about the minas, remember? And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went in and dug the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received one talent 
came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you had not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. You ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have at least received back my own with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, even more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In each of these parables, we see that Jesus mentions the same four warnings about Judgment Day. There is a work, preparation, or business that his disciples are to actively be doing until he returns. Secondly, he warns all of us to watch, for no one knows the day nor the hour of his return. If we really believe that he may return at any moment, then we would be actively doing what he said. Thirdly, all of the servants had to come before the master, and they each were judged according to their own ability. Likewise, the baby Christian will not be judged as the adolescent. The adult Christian will not be judged as the teacher or the leader. While we may not all be judged exactly the same, we will all stand before the Lord. And we see the scripture reference for that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9-11. to 11. Lastly, when the angel shouts and the trumpet sounds to announce the Lord's coming, those who have not prepared or done their work will suffer judgment instead of going with him, being rewarded, and seeing the kingdom of heaven. In the parable of the ten virgins, the foolish virgins took no oil with them. With no oil, they had nothing to provide light for others or even for themselves. Jesus said that we, his disciples, are the lights of the world. And we see that in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. With that said, what kind of disciple would the unprepared virgins be? They would be the disciples who chose not to prepare. By so doing, neither they nor anyone else would benefit from the light they were supposed to have. Jesus mentions the same instruction in Mark chapter 13, verses 32 to 37. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he finds you sleeping, and what I say to you I say to all. Watch. In the parable of the ten virgins, Jesus said all of the virgins slept and slumbered. And in the last parable, Jesus said that it would not be good for the master to return and find his servants sleeping. In those two parables, what kind of sleep was he talking about? Whether you are saved or unsaved, we will all fall asleep and die one day, unless we are alive when Jesus returns, in which case those who have obeyed him will be caught up with him in the air when he returns. We just read that in First Thessalonians. Now, 
This is the type of sleep represented with all of the virgins, where it says they all slept and slumbered. Now, none of the virgins were reprimanded for going to sleep. However, in the last parable with the servants, that was a different kind of sleep. What kind of sleep would cause the master to be upset? The sleep that was depicted with the servants was like someone taking a nap on the job when they should have been working. Not just a message for the unsaved. Many in the church have often preached that in these parables and teachings, Jesus was saying that accepting salvation was the only work that needed to be done and that the unsaved people would be the ones that would be cast into outer darkness. But from reading these passages in context, we can see that just receiving salvation is not what Jesus said, and that is not what he meant. Along with the unsaved people, Jesus said and meant that those disciples of his, who chose not to obey him, would be the ones who would also be cast into outer darkness. Think about it. The parables mention the master coming back and finding his servants sleeping. Now think about that. Again, for those who have previously thought that that those that would be cast out into outer darkness would be the unsaved people. Think about that. It says the master and his servants. If you don't work for me, I wouldn't think that you were my servant. You would be a stranger to me, but you wouldn't be my servant. Well, likewise, you would not be a servant of the Lord. If you didn't already know the Lord, you wouldn't be his servant. So he couldn't have been talking about unsaved people. Additionally, what state is a person in when they are sleeping? When a person is sleeping, they are not actively or consciously doing anything. Jesus did not redeem us so that we can be resting and not actively doing anything. When we study the word of God, we see that there is an active work that we as disciples are to be doing and that those who are caught sleeping on the job when Jesus comes will find themselves cast into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Therefore, we see that the foolish and lazy servant in these parables had the same fate as the servant in the parable of the unfaithful servant. That's in Luke chapter 12, verses 35 to 38. He will be cut in two and shall be given a portion with the unbelievers. And what is their portion? Unbelievers have no salvation. When they die, they go to hell. So those who choose not to obey the Lord will find themselves having the same portion of hell as the unbelievers. In this same parable, The master said to his servants, do business till I come back. When Jesus was 12 years old, he got separated from his parents while on an out of town trip. They found him in the temple three days later, listening to the teachers and asking them questions. We see this recorded in Luke chapter two, verses 45 to 48. Distressed from their ordeal, Mary and Joseph asked where he had been. This was his reply. And he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And that's recorded in Luke chapter 2, verse 49. The Bible also tells us in John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In John 6, 38, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Matthew 4.23 says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases among the people. In Luke 4.24, Jesus said, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. With all of these scriptures understood, 
As disciples of Jesus, what is our business? Colossians 1.18 says that Jesus is the head of the church and that the collective church is his body, which means that our business, the church's business, is the same thing that was Jesus's business, which is preaching, teaching, and sharing the gospel with others and healing the sick and making disciples who do the same. And the scripture reference for that again is Matthew 28 verses 18 to 20 and Mark 16.15. Likewise, his disciples are always about his father's business. But ask yourself, whose business are you minding right now? Church business today, not always about the father's business. We casually give ourselves passes for disobedience, saying, Jesus didn't call everyone to be a preacher. Everyone knows that, so I know he's not expecting me to do that. On a regular job, your boss tells you what to do, and as an employee, You do as they tell you to do as long as you have that job. You completely understand that by having that job, that employer is your boss and you are to fulfill that job as they have commanded you to do. Likewise, to call someone Lord means that you submit yourself to their authority and follow their commands. Yet how can we call Jesus Lord and not obey him? How do we claim to belong to his church and even be in positions of leadership in his church yet not want to fulfill what he called us to do, the way he told us to do it. That's like hiring a person to wash your car with soap and water, yet they insist on covering your car with cake frosting. What would you do with such a person? You'd fire them, of course. What do you think Jesus will do to those who say they work for him, but don't do what he hired them to do? We may as well not call him Lord at all if we're not going to obey him. And if you're not going to obey him, that sounds like you've chosen to reject him as Lord. Isn't that what the Pharisees did? Isn't that exactly how Jesus described the wicked servants in the parable of the Minas, where the servants said they did not want him to be their Lord and rule over them? What happened to the servants that said they didn't want him to rule over them? Well, let's just flip back to it right quick. That parable is in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27. When the nobleman went away to receive his kingdom, it says his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. But after he returned and dealt with his servants that was supposed to do business with the minors that he gave them, he also dealt with those who said they didn't want him to be Lord over them. It says, but these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. When we say we don't want to do what Jesus said, we are saying that we don't want him to be Lord over us. And if we're not going to call him Lord, then we're looking to be slayed in his presence come judgment day. Think about that for a minute. And this is talking about the Christians. These are talking about the saved people. In order for you to be a wicked servant, you have to be a servant of his. We're not talking about the unsaved people. We're talking about the people in the house of God. A major reason that vast numbers of people came to see Jesus was because he preached the gospel, healed the sick, and cast out demons. His power to help them is what drew people to him. Jesus made disciples by training them so that they could be sent out, preach the gospel, heal the sick, and cast out demons. If we are truly his disciples, then we are to do as he did. As his disciples, that same power to preach, heal, and cast out demons is there for us when we believe his word and actively do what he has commanded us to do. But where's the power in the church today? Think about this. 
There are churches on just about every street corner in America, yet many of them struggle with maintaining attendance from one Sunday to the next. Why is that? While they may have a pastor or ministry staff who preaches sermons, there is no power to help people there. And because there is no power there to heal, help, or cast out demons, many feel as though they can get the same powerless results sitting at home or going to a social club meeting instead of coming to church. It can be very easy to become busy with church programs, conventions, choir rehearsals, the annual picnic, and many other church events. But Jesus did not command us to do any of those things. It's funny. If you go to a church today and don't see a choir or different ministry activities to participate in, you start to wonder if that church was really a real church after all. But that's exactly how the Pharisees looked at Jesus. They wondered why he didn't do all of the traditional things that they did. Jesus told the Pharisees that while they always remembered to do all of the traditions that their fathers came up with, they neglected the things that God, their heavenly father, commanded them to do. And we see that scripture reference in Luke chapter 11, verses 39 to 52. Likewise, when we look at the church today, many have beautiful facilities, large choirs, and tons of ministry events and activities, yet no one is being trained to be a disciple of Jesus. No one knows or understands how to exercise the authority he has given us over the power of the devil. With that said, is your church really any different from a civic club or a community center? At a civic club weekly meeting, what do the members do? They sing a song, they say a pledge, they go over announcements, there's a message from a speaker, they collect dues or membership fees, they have a few remarks and then a dismissal, then they socialize and network with the other members afterwards. Well, what happens at most churches every week? They sing songs, they pray, they go over announcements, there's a sermon, they collect offerings, there's a few remarks in the benediction, and then you socialize and network with the other members once church is over. Don't they sound like they're about the same thing? Nobody could ever compare one of Jesus's meetings to a regular day in the synagogue. There was an obvious difference when people came to see Jesus, and there likewise should be an obvious difference when people come to your church. If there is no obvious difference between your church and what goes on in a civic meeting from one week to the next, we're not doing something right. In a high school, while the principal and the teachers may work at that school for many, many years, the students only attend the school for a specified period of time. And when a student goes to school, they do so for a reason, to study, to graduate, and to be able to work using what they learned after they graduate. As long as Jesus was still teaching his disciples, they remained in school with him, but their studies ended just after his resurrection. Before he ascended into heaven, Jesus did not tell his disciples to continue meeting at the synagogue every week to be taught by a new teacher. He told them to preach the gospel and make disciples because they had completed their training. Even after the apostle Paul fully received the gospel by revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ, he didn't find a church home and become active in their men's ministry. He went out as he was commanded and preached the gospel. According to the model Jesus set with his disciples, the church was never meant to be a place that we visit to hear people read the scriptures to us and remain there decade after decade until we die. That is the model that the Israelites were to follow under the old covenant, 
However, the New Testament church is not supposed to be a social club or a high school for kids who never ever graduate, nor was it ever supposed to be a place that was focused on how many members it could amass and retain from one year to the next. His church, the collective body of Christ comprised of actual disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, is very different from many of the churches today. The churches today that are typically identified as a building or group where people regularly practice some type of religious service or man-made traditions. If you are part of his church, then you are supposed to be doing what he said. Jesus commanded his disciples to go into the world, preach the gospel, and make disciples, not just get people saved or make more church members. And again, we see the scripture reference of that in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, and Mark 16, verses 16 to 18. Again, the purpose of the church is to preach the gospel so that people can hear, believe, and receive salvation, healing, and all that Jesus died for us to have. And just like the disciples of the days of the early church, once they have heard, believed, and received the gospel, they are to likewise be trained as disciples so that they can eventually be sent out and duplicate the process. When people are not trained to be disciples, they become spiritually immature adults who wait as if they are babies week after week for their next bottle feeding, but they never ever mature. If the church has been busy getting people saved, but never trains its members to be disciples, then the church is not doing what Jesus commanded. When those in the church are trained to be disciples of Jesus, they believe the word of God and fully understand how to have dominion and exercise spiritual authority. Disciples of Jesus are compelled to share the good news of the gospel with others because they have believed his word for themselves. When they preach and share the gospel that they have believed with others, the power of God is at work to heal and to save them. Again, that is what the Bible tells us in Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, unto healing, unto help, unto all who believe it. Remember, that's what drew multitudes, thousands and thousands of people to Jesus, his power to help them. And if the church is not believing and obeying his word so that his power can be in operation, then the world will not be drawn to hear and receive salvation. And if no one is drawn to hear and receive salvation, no one will become a disciple. And if no one will become a disciple, no one will believe and preach the good news to others and have his power in operation. And if his power is not in operation, well, you get the picture. Now ask yourself, are you a trained disciple of Jesus, ready to preach the gospel, heal the sick and cast out demons? And if you are, have you trained anybody else to be a disciple of Jesus? Is anyone at your church a trained disciple of Jesus? Does the majority of people at your church know how to exercise spiritual authority in prayer? If so, do people know that they can come to your church to hear the gospel, be healed, or have demons cast out? If the majority of your church's congregation are saved folks who go to church every Sunday, but don't preach the gospel, heal the sick, and cast out demons, You are not trained disciples. Your church is a meeting place for sleeping servants. Jesus said Isaiah spoke correctly of the Pharisees' hypocrisy, saying, They honor me with their lips, yet their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. And we see the scripture reference for that in Isaiah 29, verse 13, and Matthew 15, 8. What does it mean to do something in vain? Your efforts amount to nothing. If you are not training people to be disciples of Jesus, every ministry activity and every event that your church put on last year was done in vain. 
you all could have spent your time doing something completely different and totally unrelated and ended up with the with exactly the same results. Think on that for a minute. The Bible also tells us, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And we see that in Psalm 127 verse 1. In the day of judgment, Jesus said many good church folks will say, Lord, we held conferences in your name every year. We had ministry events and built many churches in your name. We spoke with other tongues and prophesied and even cast out demons in your name. And in spite of all the church programs and conferences and canned food drives that you held in his name, Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. That's what he said in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Again, Jesus taught about his return and the penalties of final judgment more than any other subject. And what did he want us to learn from those parables? And as we continue to study throughout the rest of this chapter, we will briefly review those parables and what is in store for those who choose to obey and disobey his commands. All right, I hope you're getting some understanding. When you read these parables, it is eye-opening. Especially for those who think that you are doing all that you're supposed to be doing by going to church every Sunday. If you're not making disciples, it's like, what have you been doing? On secular jobs, there are review periods where like every so many months you have to go in with your supervisor, or your manager, and they go over your job performance and they measure what your actual performance is up against your job requirements. Okay, well, we require you to be on time for work. This is how many days you were on time for work. You were supposed to answer the phone and file papers. And we see here that you barely answered the phone and you didn't file any papers. They measure your performance up against your job description. Well, likewise, come judgment day, there's going to be some measuring up based off of what the job description was. And Jesus tells us what the job description is. Stop lying to yourself and telling yourself the good Lord did not call everybody to preach. Stop giving yourself a pass because come judgment day, there will be no pass. Let this word sink into your soul. Pray and ask God to reveal this word in your heart so that if you have previously believed the notion that everybody isn't supposed to be preaching the gospel, ask God to reveal the truth in your heart so that you can start walking up right, walking in the right direction so that come judgment day, you'll have what is required. Amen? All right. If you have any questions, any positive feedback about the podcast or the material, you can send me a message, email me at contact at studywithcmartin.com or complete the contact form on the studywithcmartin.com website. You can message me on Instagram or Facebook at studywithcmartin. You can also leave an audio message or testimony at anchor.fm forward slash studywithcmartin. I want to thank you again for spending time with me today on the Study with C. Martin podcast. Again, I have been your host, Shonda Martin, and I look forward to studying with you next time. Take care.